We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we're, I guess we're going to do our final in-person together podcast, at least this week. I'm in Colorado with Bob at his house. So we're doing a study of the life of Karl Marx today. Is that the plan? We are. We've got a couple questions, though, first, Hampton. Um, Did you go fishing yesterday? I did. How'd you do? I got skunked. The water was a little brown from the rain a few days ago. So, But it was nice to do that again in my old stomping grounds. It's hard to have a bad day doing that. That's true. That's true. Uh, my second question is, are you excited this morning, Hampton? I am. Okay. <laughs> anxious to find out about Karl Marx. <laughs> okay. And my third question is this. Do you think Satan knows who the Antichrist is? No, I don't think he knows that. I think most listeners... In Western believers in Western Christianity kind of have the idea that he, I think they would answer that yes, of course he does. Isn't the Antichrist in many ways like a manifestation of the devil himself? But I want to read a passage out of First John. But I don't want to go into tremendous detail on the relationship between the letters of John and the gospel of John, though that's an important subject for everybody to think through. There's there's lots to talk about there. We're not going to do that this morning, but we're going to read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, that your sins have been forgiven because of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, that you have known him who's been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young people, that you've conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, that you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, that you have known him who was from the beginning. I have written to you, young people, that you are strong and the word of God resides in you and you have conquered The evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all that's in the world, 
the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the arrogance produced by material possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with all its desires. But the person who does the will of God remains forever. Children, it's the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have appeared. We know from this that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Because if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But they went out from us to demonstrate that all of them do not belong to us. There's probably a thousand things to talk about. Oh my goodness. In those few verses. I mean, this is not the right way to say it, but it's just sort of a, a fun question. Of all the biblical writers, remember we posed this once about a French guy, Rabelais. Or, or we posed it also about the founding fathers of uh, America. Who would you like to go to a tavern with? Oh, yeah. At five o'clock in the evening. For you, it'd be John, not Daniel. <laughs> oh, well, now you're making it complicated. <laughs> I mean, you'd, you'd love all of them, right? But, uh, wow, you know, wouldn't you sit there with, with John? I suspect you would mostly listen. Right. To the others, maybe you would talk and ask. I think you would ask John one question, and then you'd be silent the rest of the mm-hmm. evening yeah. while he tried to explain everything. Uh, but boy, you threw me a curveball with Daniel because you you <laughs> might be right like about you. that. I know how much you like Daniel. <laughs> so, but the one I wanted to focus on the one question out of that passage. Um, so now many antichrists have appeared. John's writing this ninety A.D. Or, or a little before me, but no later than that. Yeah. Many have already arisen. How interesting. So my conclusion has always been, I'm waiting further enlightenment, but so the devil doesn't know who exactly is what we call the Antichrist of the end times. So he's always got to be preparing someone for that role and in fact maybe many people at the same time right because one of them will end up being the antichrist so that's how i've always understood that so in the biographies of uh, numerous people that have you know grabbed the spotlight down through the centuries but especially in modern times i've delved a little bit into their their biographies like George Soros, for instance, as a young boy, delusions of being God. Hmm. Really? Is someone working on him to to bring that about? I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I have his autobiography over in, in the library there. You, you know, anybody could read that. But that's pretty clear. I'm not reading into that. Those are his own statements. And so we'll find the same with Karl Marx. Hints that you know of these godlike delusions, and it's it's interesting. Does that mean the devil's working on them in such a way that were they the actual antichrist, that then he would just walk into that right, take possession of that per- person, and 
There you go. There's the Antichrist. They could have been the the Antichrist, but other situations didn't. God was still didn't develop right. Was was not ready to let this one become the Antichrist. Correct. He was just a an Antichrist. Correct. That that's kind of how I see it. Okay. So I wanted to read that first before we read uh, one of our favorite authors. You know, for certain subjects, how do you pass up people that are geniuses in their field, <laughs> right? So, you know, I often refer to Thomas Sowell. So his last name is S-O-W-E-L-L. I think he's still with us. He's, he's, he's old. Still alive, yeah. He's old, but I think I've seen recent things by him. He's not working hard anymore. He's not so much in the public eye. Uh, but he's a great, he's my favorite economist by far. Uh, writes very clearly. Sometimes that's what you look for more than anything else in some of those subjects. Somebody who can say it. That you can understand it. So I can understand it. So if you can write at that, write great thoughts, but at my level, you're doing a good job. So he has a book called Marxism. I've gone through this book a number of times. Let me see when it was published. 1985 by Thomas Sowell. He's been writing ever since. He's prolific. Uh, But one of the chapters in here, you know, he goes through, he's an economist, so he goes through the philosophy and the economics of communism. And he has one, one chapter in here on Karl Marx, the man. So he does a little biographical chapter and it's uh, fantastic. So I wonder how many people, when they think of uh, communism, instantly attach that to Karl Marx. Though it's a, it's a broad movement, but he would be considered the progenitor of communism. And I wonder how much they know about Karl. <laughs> so we're going to find out. <laughs> if you're going to be um, persuaded to follow in those footsteps, you ought to know who made those footsteps. And once you see the person, Karl Marx, who made the footsteps of communism, you're not going to want to follow that path very far. Right. But I know no other way to do this, really, Hampton, than, than to read. Because with Thomas Sowell, it's, you know, I, I look for these... <laughs> Uh, writers, and then I try to condense what they're saying or say it in my own words. You can't condense it any more than he's condensed it. And you can't say it better than him. So let's just read and then interrupt me when he sparks a thought that you want him to comment on. And I'll interrupt myself at certain points. So here we go. Karl Marx, the man. After a century of myths and counter-myths, of deification and satanizing. It's hard to realize that behind all the portraits and caricatures to be seen on printed pages and on banners, there really was a flesh and blood human being named Karl Marx. He was born in the little German town of Trier in the Rhineland, 1918. You ever been there? (laughs) I lived about 30 minutes from Trier for three years, and we would drive down to Trier and 
There was the old Roman gate, because I think Trier's the oldest city in Germany. Oh. And we would go down there to the Fußgänger and walk around. Was it nice? Was it a nice area? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was just a, you know, kind of outdoor shopping, you know, going to the different shops. Yeah. Kind of like, they used to have big malls. Big malls used to be popular here with the indoor mall, and now they kind of are building the ones where you walk down the street going mm-hmm. to separate uh, stores. That was the way it was there. Okay. Um, 1818 is when he was born in a three-story townhouse in a fashionable part of town. A baron lived nearby, and his four-year-old daughter was destined to become Karl Marx's wife. The people who signed as witnesses on Karl Marx's birth certificate were prominent citizens. The Marxes, like their neighbors and friends, had servants, property, education, and local prominence. Unlike most of their neighbors and friends, however, both Heinrich Marx and his wife Henrietta were descended from a long line of rabbis. Indeed, the town's chief rabbi was his brother. But they were brothers estranged from each other, since Heinrich Marx had abandoned the faith of his fathers. Karl Marx was baptized a Lutheran. Throughout his life, he spoke of Jews in the third person and seldom complimentarily. Marx was the third child born in his family, the second to survive, and the oldest boy. Younger brothers and sisters were born annually for the next four years, then two more at two-year intervals. The father was a prosperous lawyer who also owned vineyards as well as houses whose rents supplemented his income. He was a man of wide culture and political liberalism. His son idolized him and in later years spoke of him often to his own children, though they had never seen him his death having occurred decades before. Marx's mother was Dutch, spoke German with a heavy Dutch accent. She was a devoted housewife, not a woman of learning, and though her son loved her in childhood, they were soon estranged in his early adulthood. When she died many years later, Marx expressed not the slightest sorrow. Karl Marx grew up a brilliant, spoiled child who bullied his younger sister and taunted his schoolmates with sarcastic witticisms, in addition to entertaining both with imaginative stories. He had a swarthy complexion that in later years earned him the nickname The Moor, a name used far more often in his inner circle, including his children, than was his real name. His neighbor, Baron von Westphalen, took a great interest in Marx as a youth, and the learned Baron would often take long walks with him discussing Homer, Shakespeare, Voltaire, or other great writers in any of number of languages that the Baron spoke. As a young man, Karl Marx attended the University of Bonn for one year. There he was an enthusiastic student but also an enthusiastic drinker and took part in rowdiness in at least one duel. His father 
transferred him to the University of Berlin, a larger and more serious institution. But the self-indulgent bohemian and spendthrift habits of Marx had ex- that Marx had ex- exhibited at Bonn continued at Berlin, where he was sued several times for non-payment of debts. His father's letters show growing recriminations directed not only at his son's prodigious capacity to waste money, a talent he never lost throughout his life, but also at a more disturbing personal characteristic, egomania. One of egomania. Egomania. Okay. <laughs> One of Marx's many poems of this period says, Then I will wander godlike and victorious through the wor- ruins of the world, and giving my words an active force, I will feel equal to the Creator. Well, there's a God delusion right there. <laughs> So there are two central passages, Hampton, in the scriptures that give a good description of Satan's fall and give insight into his character. They're kind of easy to remember because they're multiples. So Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Okay. <laughs> if you can get the first one, just times it by two okay. and go over to Ezekiel. But here's, they're both fantastic passages to be familiar with, but... Um, here's the Isaiah 14 we'll start in it's been describing a cherub we'll start in verse 12 look how you have fallen from the sky O shining one son of the dawn you've been cut down to the ground O conqueror of nations you said to yourself I will climb up to the sky above the stars of El I will set up my throne I will rule on the mountain of assembly and on the remote slopes of Zaphon. I will climb up to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, how close did that sound? Yeah, that sounded very similar. To Marx, who I doubt, you know, has that passage in his mind such that it's reflect, you know, it's influencing his thoughts. Right. I think he himself is influencing his thoughts along with help. Maybe there's some demonic influence there. From this guy. That sounded very similar. So, back to Thomas Sowell. The themes of destruction, corruption, and savagery run through Marx's poems of this era two of which were published in a small literary magazine of the time under the title Savage Songs. There was nothing political about these writings. Marx had not yet turned his attention in that direction. He was simply, as one biographer said, a man with a peculiar faculty for relishing disaster. A contemporary description of Marx as a student depicts the same demonic personality. Again, not yet in a political context. So here's a, a poem by one of his schoolmates okay. about him. But who advances here 
full of impetuosity. It's a dark form from Trier, an unleashed monster. With self-assured step, he hammers the ground with his heels and raises his arms in all fury to heaven, as though he wished to seize the celestial vault and lower to the earth. In rage, he continually deals with his redoubtable fist, as if a thousand devils were gripping his hair. Now, how similar did that sound yeah. to Isaiah 14? Again, I don't think they're thinking through the Bible and then applying that. That's just their common perception of this guy. Right. In short, Marx is angry. Apocalyptic visions existed before he discovered capitalism as the focus of such visions. Marx entered the University of Berlin a few years after the death of its most famous professor. Want to guess? Hegel. Hegel. G.W.F. Hegel. You're so good, Hampton. Whose posthumous influence was even greater than during his lifetime. Marx began to associate with a group called the Young Hegelians, who were preoccupied with philosophy in general and religion in particular, or rather with atheism, for they were radical critics of Christianity. Remember uh, how we began this morning, we read that passage in 1 John, and one of the thousands of questions we didn't address out of just that passage was John saying, they went out from us, for they were not really of us. Right. Here's the young Hegelians, atheists, right. radical critics of Christianity. Marx's formal studies languished. He took only two courses in his last three years at the University of Berlin. Marx became a bohemian student who merely regarded the university as his camping ground. That's a quote from a friend. And he was largely self-taught. The death of his father in 1838 and his long engagement to Jenny von Westphalen eventually made it necessary that he prepare to bring his studies to a close. Although he had studied at the University of Jena an easier, or excuse me, although he had studied at the University of Berlin, he applied for a doctorate at the University of Jena, an easier institution noted as a diploma mill. <laughs> he has the mind, though. Marx is very sharp. I mean, yeah. he could do the work if well, he wants. to make that his parents are paying for his education and he takes two courses in three years. <laughs> wonder where that tuition money was going. His devoted... His doctoral dissertation was on two ancient materialist philosophers, Democritus and Epicurus. It's important that they were materialist. So, his early career. Searching aimlessly for a career, Marx drifted in journalism and became editor of the Rheinische Zeitung, a liberal newspaper reflecting Marx's own political views at that time, as well as that of the Rhineland middle class in general. Isn't that the 
right newspaper edit. There you go. Right. Right. Under Prussian repression of that era, liberalism was an embattled and endangered creed, and Marx made the newspaper more controversial and more widely read than before. His running of the paper was characterized by a contemporary as a dictatorship of Marx. And so many groups with which he was affiliated would be throughout his lifetime. Another contemporary described him as domineering, impetuous, passionate, full of boundless self-confidence. Marx engaged in a running battle of wit with the government's censors and ironically tried to restrain some of the more radical of the newspaper's writers. Among these was another young man from an affluent background named Moses Hess, a communist who eventually converted still another such offspring of wealth to communism, Friedrich Engels. Marx, however, purged Hess from the newspaper and his smuggling into the newspaper of communist and socialist dogmas disguised as theatrical criticism. That's a quote. That's Marx talking. Only after Marx finally resigned as editor to spare the paper from being banned (laughs) did he begin the studies that would eventually lead him to communism. During the same period, in the early 1840s, Marx had a decisive break with his family. Now that his father was dead and the estate had to suffice for eight people to live on, Frau Marx was not inclined to continue indefinitely sending money to her eldest son, now fully grown and holding a doctoral degree. Marx had continued his already long-standing practice of running up bills that he could not pay and was outraged that his mother cut off his remaining small allowance. As he put it in a letter to a friend, although they are quite rich, my family has placed difficulties in my way, which have temporarily placed me in an embarrassing situation. Any common threads so far? Like, is is there any um, ownership of his own status? No, it's his, it's his mom's fault. Her parents' fault that he doesn't have money. Not, yeah, not his. Guy's a young man, right? Mid twenties. They yeah. paid for all his education. He's now got his doctor. Well, go out and Get make a, a living. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> they put me in an embarrassing situation. Oh, yeah, they did. Right. Okay. As, uh, such temporary embarrassments were to become a permanent feature of Marx's life over the next four decades. Nevertheless, he eventually persuaded the aristocratic von Westphalens to let him marry their daughter, now 29 years old, who had waited faithfully for him for seven years. It was not a marriage whose prospects were viewed with favor by either family. There was a church wedding in 1843, but most of her family and all of his family stayed away. However, the bride's mother paid for the honeymoon and in addition turned over to the couple a small legacy which she had received. This legacy was held in the form of coins in a strong box, which Marx and his bride then left open in their hotel rooms, inviting any visitors to take whatever they might need. 
it was empty before they returned to her home where they lived with their mother for several months. Kind of, he's not, he doesn't hold on to, you know what I mean? He's not, he needs it, but he doesn't grasp it, you know? Yeah, it, that, that's a, that's kind of a strange thing to do. Just leave your money box open. Anybody wants some money, take it. Yeah. Well, it's sort of, you know, it's weird. Yeah. yeah. What What is that? You know, is that just a really giving spirit or is that? Foolishness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's strange. <clears throat> in October 1843, Marx and his wife, now pregnant, moved to Paris, where he was hired to contribute to a publishing venture, a bilingual journal for German and French readers. Only one issue ever appeared. Marx and the editor quarreled and broke up, leaving Marx without funds in a foreign land. A collection was hastily taken up by friends in Cologne, and the couple was rescued, as they would be again and again throughout their lives. Here in Paris, Marx began the studies that led him to communism. He also began to meet other radical figures of the time, including the radical poet Heinrich Heine, a Russian anarchist, Mikhail Bakunin, and the French radical writer Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Heine, though at first a great friend of the Marxes, was eventually alienated by Karl Marx's arrogance and dogmatism. In later years, Heine described Paris radicals, including Marx, as a crowd of godless, self-appointed gods. Among those radicals was a young German whom Marx had met briefly before, Friedrich Engels. Right. We've seen him twice. Yeah. Engels, two years younger than Marx, came from an even wealthier family, which owned self-interest in a factory in Germany and half-interest in another factory in England. His father had never been as indulgent as Marx's father, and Engels never attended a university, but he was well-read and by middle age could read and write Nearly two dozen languages. Oh, my goodness. These aren't dumb guys. No. Engels was sent away at 17 to get on-the-job training in the family business in Bremen. Here, he was not overworked. (laughs) (laughs) He was, after all, an owner's son and was known to have beers, cigars, poems, and correspondences with him and to take a leisurely lunch and a nap, hey, I'm all for naps, afterwards in a hammock. He also found time to study Hegel. Engels eventually became a member of the Young Hegelians, and in 1842 had his first brief meeting with the editor of the Rheinische Zeitung, Karl Marx. Their first meeting was cool, for Marx viewed Engels at that point as just another member of the radical group whose literary contributions to the paper were causing him trouble with the censors. From 1842 to 1844, Engels lived in Manchester, England, working in the family business there and observing the conditions of the working people in this industrial town. Observations that led to his first book, The Conditions of the Working Class in England in 1844. 
When he passed through Paris on his way back to the Rhineland in 1844, he again met Marx, and this time, many days of discussion found them in complete agreement on questions of theory. <clears throat> That's a quote from Engels. Well, I find it interesting that, you know, a rich, a rich playboy, Engels, would, you know, be looking at the working class and recognize their plight, and certainly there was a lot of problems with the working class in England in the 1840s. Yeah. So that was a legitimate concern. complaint, concern, yeah. observation. Yeah. Yeah. As they continued to be for remaining decades of their lives, so in complete agreement in theory, Marx and Engels. At this juncture, Engels was not only further advanced than Marx on the road to communism, but was also much better versed in economics. Although their first joint publication, The Holy Family, appeared a year later, there was at that point no suggestion of a continuing collaboration between them. The foreword to The Holy Family promised future writings from the pair, each for himself, of course. But in reality, later events brought them together again in England, in a permanent alliance in which their ideas and words were so intermingled that it would be rash to say conclusively a hundred years later what was Marx's and what was Engels. Even Marx's daughter, after his death, mistakenly published a collection of her father's newspaper articles that later turned out all to have been written by Engels. We attribute Marx with communism, communism yeah. but it may many of the things that have been attributed to him might have actually been Engels. The, the writing of it, um, it, although it said earlier, right there in complete agreement on theory, but Engels probably did most of the writing. Although, you, you know, it, we're almost compelled to look at like Engels was the genius, and Marx was a very smart right. guy. The most famous of their explicitly collaborative writings was, of course, the Communist Manifesto. Its genesis typified the pattern of Marxian political intrigue. A radical organization in London called the League of the Just was in process of reorganization to becoming the Communist League, and it involved several people in the drawing up of its credo. One of these submitted his draft to Engels, who confessed to Marx that just between ourselves, I played a high hellish trick on Mosi, <laughs> substituting the Marxian program for the draft entrusted to him. So a guy gives him a draft, hey, this is for publication for the young communists, and he just rewrites it as his own, right? Yeah. He just substitutes his own, <clears throat> substituting Marxian program for the draft entrusted him. Engels realized that the enormity of his betrayal, for he cautioned Marx to utter secrecy, otherwise we shall be deposed and there will be a murderous scandal. Thus Marx and Engels made themselves the voice of communism. Engels wrote up a document in question and answer format, but then decided he didn't like it. He turned his work over to Marx to redo in some other format and suggested the title, The Communist Manifesto. 
Slowly, the document evolved, written mostly in the style of Marx, though <clears throat> reproducing some ideas from Engels' earlier draft. It was published in February 1848 as the Manifesto of the Communist Party, with no authors listed, as though it were the work of some major organization rather than a relative handful of radical refugees. Actually, it was Marx and Engels. Right. <laughs> Well, it sounds like Marx was more of the writer than Engels. Of, of that one. Yeah, of that, yeah. The members of the Communist League were overwhelmingly intellectuals and professionals with a very few skilled craftsmen. Their average age was under 30. It had the same kind of social composition that would in later years characterize the so-called International Working Man's Association and many other radical groups in which the youthful offspring of privilege called themselves the proletariat. When Engels was elected as delegate to the Communist League in 1847, in order to conceal what was in fact an unopposed election, in Engels' own words, a working man was proposed for appearance sake, but those who proposed him voted for me. <laughs> So, the, so this this organization is spoiled rich kids. Yes, and they are claiming to be working. Yeah, class, the working the guys. The working guys sounds like a certain president who's always talking about <laughs> his father, who was a working class person, or something. There you go. <laughs> Ironically, the year eighteen forty eight was a year of revolutions, but the revolutions was different from that described. In the Communist Manifesto, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat were in revolutionary alliance against the autocratic European governments on the continent. So when, when we say those terms, do you have a, a grip on those, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat? I would say the bourgeoisie would be the merchants, perhaps, and the proletariat would be the guys that worked in the factory, the pretty, farmer. Pretty good. Pretty good. I'd say, because I wrote this down, I looked it up, you know, while I'm reading this for three or four times through, I got to get the vocabulary down. So bourgeoisie, primarily, like you could say, up, we might use the term upper class or upper middle and proletariat, just like you said, the working class. <clears throat> but they sort of banded together against the um, autocratic European governments. Okay. So... During the upheavals that swept across Europe, Marx and Engels returned to Germany. Marx to edit a newspaper, the Neue Rheinische Zeitung, in his familiar dictatorial style. All this is quoted, you know, mm -hmm. footnoted. So he's is this isn't Thomas Sowell making up his own right point of view. He's just quoting what other people were saying at the time. Right. Engels worked at first as his chief assistant until he had to flee in order for his arrest for inciting to violence. Engels made his way through France to Switzerland, enjoying along the way the sweetest grapes and loveliest girls. So then there's a couple paragraphs about Engels' lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Right? It's just women. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm going to skip those. In 1849, Engels returned to Germany, where the revolution was being suppressed and took part in armed fighting against the government forces. An expulsion order was issued against Marx, who had to liquidate the newspaper with ruinous financial losses. 
By the later half of 1849, Marx and Engels had separately made their ways to England, where they were destined to spend the rest of their lives. <clears throat> so the next little section is called Exiles. The dream of returning to the continent in triumph after revolutions there continued to fascinate Marx and Engels. One scholar has counted more than 40 anticipations of impending revolution in their letters and writings over the next 30 years, none of which materialized. But as early as 18... Well, I'm going to interject there. Um, was it the Truman book that we were reading where he said that communism, Marxism, or thinking that the proletariat would rise up and it never really does in a capitalist society. Right. And so they switched, not them, Marx and Engels, but the left switched over to the sexual revolution. Right. To use that to change, transform society. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, and, and race, right? Those are the two, sexual revolution and race. Or yeah, what the, the communists I, use yeah, in the United States. Identity politics. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> but as early as 1850, Marx and Engels had to begin making some preparations for a livelihood in England. Marx was then 32, Engels 30. Neither of them had ever been self-supporting. They had lived off allowances and gifts from their families. Yeah, I, th I think that's a key point, that neither one of them had ever been self-supporting. Right. They don't work. But they're not, la you know, these are not lazy people, but it's, it's not, uh, like you they're said. They're not productive members of society. No. Um, so they live off their families, off small inheritance from relatives, and the sale of belongings, borrowings, credit defaults, emergency collections among friends and colleagues, and a few scattered and meager earnings from their writings. Credit, that, credit defaults is a, sure a nice way to put it. Yeah, debt. <laughs> that you just don't you, pay your you debt. You don't pay your debts. Yeah. That's right. Now most of these sources had dried up. Both Marx and Engels were estranged from their families who were as disappointed at their prolonged dependency as they were repelled by their doctrines. Still, as late as 1849, Marx's much-despised mother advanced him enough money from his future inheritance to enable him to live comfortably for years, though in fact it was all gone within one year. Much of it spent to buy arms for abortive uprisings and to finance Marx's newspaper. Engels' pious father, described by the younger Engels as bigoted and despotic. That's how he describes his... His dad? Yeah. yeah. Nevertheless, supported him financially. At age 30, Engels accepted his father's offer to work in the family business in Manchester. This became the source of Engels' livelihood and much of Marx's. The young Engels called it forced labor a painfully ironic term in view of what that phrase has come to mean in 20th century communist societies. Engels complained, for example, I've now got to be at the office no later than 10 in the morning. 
That's his complaint. <clears throat> and then he takes a leisurely lunch and has a nap. Correct. So he may maybe work two hours a day. <laughs> the firm in which Engel's father had half interest employed about 800 workers. Though Engels began on a modest level in the management, his position and his pay rose over the years until he was able to retire at age 50 with substantial funds for himself and at the same time provide a very generous annuity that relieved Marx of financial worry for the rest of his life. So Engels supports Marx. Wow. For most of Marx's So we life. really shouldn't be blaming Marx and Engels for communism. We should be blaming the stupid parents <laughs> that, that, yeah, that didn't discipline them. That supported them, teach them right. But before reaching that point, the financial position of Marx and his growing family was often dire and occasionally desperate. In 1850, the Marx family moved into the slums of London where they spent most of the next 20 years. During this time, it was often difficult for Marx to come up with the money to pay the rent, buy groceries, or pay his bills. The family often dodged creditors, were evicted for non-payment of rent, on some occasions had to live on bread and potatoes, frequently pawned their meager belongings, and had three children die amid the squalor, including one for whom there was no money for a burial until a gift was received from the, for that purpose. Yet despite the very real and painful poverty in which Marx often found himself, his known sources of income were sufficient for a lower middle-class family standard of living at that time. It was about three times the income of an unskilled worker. A contemporary German exile with a similar income to Marx's boasted of eating luscious beef steak regularly. So he's got he's got the enough. means. Yeah, he's he's making enough, or receiving enough money to live comfortably. Yes, he could. Marx's only regular earnings were as a foreign correspondent for the New York Tribune. But Engels supplemented this even in the early years before his own finances were solid. And other gifts and inheritances added materially to Marx's resources. The problem was Marx's chronic inability to manage money, especially his and his wife's tendency to splurge when large sums came in. I gotta pause there for a second. That's in the middle of the paragraph. The problem was Marx's chronic inability to manage money. That's the guy whose footsteps our country wants to follow. Right. Good thought. Chronic inability to manage money. Does that not describe communism to a T? Yeah. Remember the common quip, right? Communists are great at spending other people's money. That's yeah, what was it Margaret Thatcher said? That's the problem with... Socialism, Socialism but you so, run out of other people's money. Isn't that exactly Karl Marx's life? Yeah. To a T. Yeah. Moreover, Marx spent at least, uh, like when large sums came in, moreover, Marx spent at least 100 pounds on a feudal lawsuit against an obscure slander 
named Vote. How how would you pronounce it? V O G T. Enough to support a family for months in those times and wasted still more money and time on a long-forgotten book of rebuttal called Hair Vote, (laughs) for which he was sued in court to collect the unpaid costs of publication. In 1864, Marx received a number of inheritances that added up to ten times what he'd been living on annually. And yet he was still debt-ridden in 1868 when Engels came to his rescue by paying off Marx's debts and then giving him an annuity. Ten times what he needed, and that's all gone. With, with quick. Yeah, well, that goes back to that time when he... Opened a box. Opened up the box <laughs> full of money and said... You know. Yeah, again, I don't think it's like he... Money's his idol, it's, or maybe if it is, it's in a weird way. Yeah. But he can't manage it. Ironically, Marx's most important research and writing were done during these years of travail and heartbreak. And he produced little during the last dozen or so years of his life when he had a prosperous bourgeoisie existence. During, so, in other words, it's the angst that's driving him. Once the angst is gone, he doesn't produce anything, right? It's all his frustrations that were driving his publications. Again, not footsteps you want to follow in. No. During the 1850s, he buried himself in the reading room of the British Museum during the day, studying economics. Till late at night and into the wee hours of the morning, he scribbled the voluminous manuscripts that represented several abortive attempts to write the book that eventually emerged as Capital. Right? Das Kapital. Okay. Engels wrote little during this period when he was working as a capitalist in Manchester. Working <laughs> as a capitalist, right? Engels is just working in right, the factory. Right. <clears throat> in Manchester and underwriting Marx's efforts in communist cause of overthrowing capitalism. So Engels, the prosperous capitalist, is going to overthrow capitalism. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, irony, or I don't know the right word, but yeah. that's just strange that you're... Yeah. So there's a lack of self-awareness or something going on. Yeah, it's a, to me... You know, some of the things I'm picking up so far from reading this again for the third or fourth time is is he's driven by passion, right? He's driven by his squalid circumstances and anger at the almost like, you know, the pride of, you know, in those early poems, I should be ruler, but I'm a peasant. And that's driving him, right? Yeah, that, that there's angst. a lack of... There's a lack of reason and logic and understanding of reality. I mean, this is... Yeah, it's, like... It's not truth. As if he's emotionally driven rather than mentally driven, yeah. right? Yeah. Why Why am I out of money? Because well, I... Because you spent it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Physical ills dogged Marx increasingly with the passing years. His irregular sleeping habits, alcohol consumption, and lack of personal cleanliness 
or exercise may well have contributed to these, as his improvidence made his family prey to hunger, disease, and the deaths of three children in infancy and early childhood. But he blamed these tragedies, like most of his troubles, on other people. The death of his infant son he blamed on the bourgeoisie misery, which he apparently considered also the cause of the boils that covered his body, for he promised to make the bourgeoisie pay for them via his revolutionary writings. Marx repeatedly denounced creditors who insisted on collecting what he owed them. He even lost his temper at his his wife for her bouts of tears in the midst of mounting tragedies. Even during the long years of poverty, the Marx household had a maid, Helena de Moot, better known by her nickname of Lenchen. Do you know what that means in German? Lenchen? No. L-E-N-C-H-E-N. Lenchen? No, I don't. She had been a servant of the elder Baroness von Westphalen, who in 1845 sent her as a present to her daughter, who was unprepared to take care of children or a household. Though the Marxes were seldom in a position to pay her, dear faithful Lenchen remained in their service to their dying days and then went to work for Engels. In her youth, she passed up suitors and other opportunities for jobs to stay and serve the Marxes. In 1851, during the most desperate period of the Marx family, when Marx's wife was pregnant, Lynchin soon became pregnant too. Hmm. Only a few friends knew of the child's birth. He was sent away to be raised by a working-class family, and there was no father's name on the birth certificate. Marx's wife was told that Engels, a bachelor, was the father. But long after the death of Marx and his wife, it came out that, in fact, the father was Karl Marx. Engels confirmed it on his deathbed to Marx's tearful daughter. In his life, he had taken the blame for Marx in order to save his friend's marriage. But in death, Engels was apparently not prepared to take the blame forever. Wow. Lots of food for thought there. The child himself... Freddie DeMoot grew up with no relationship with Marx and never visited his mother as long as the Marxes were alive, only after their death when Helena DeMoot became Engel's housekeeper did the boy begin visiting his mother, entering and leaving by the back door. He was sacrificed first to Marx's convenience, then to Marx's image. His mother apparently loved him, When she died, she left everything to him. Marx's human relationships in general were self-centered, if not exploitative. When his wife gave birth to a child who died immediately, Marx briefly mentioned his own reaction in a letter to Engels, so totally ignoring the effect on his wife that Engels' reply reminded him that you don't say how she is. In 1851, at the age of 33, Marx wrote to my mother, threatening to draw bills on her, and in the event of non-payment, going to Prussia and letting himself be locked up. He's threatening his mom with legal action. Wow. 
if she doesn't support him. He's 33 years old. Unbelievable. When his mother refused to be blackmailed this way, Marx complained of her insolent reply. After his mother later died in 1863, Marx's letter to Engels was a model of brevity, wasting no sentiment on the old woman and focused entirely on getting his inheritance immediately. The word that comes to mind right now for me is entitlement. Yeah. You know, that's just... I mean, remarkably self-centered. Yeah. <clears throat> Nor was this the only occasion when death in the family was seen in purely economic terms. Earlier in 1852, he referred to some good news, the <laughs> illness of my wife's indestructible uncle. Good news. Yeah, it's good news. And added, if that dog dies now, I'll be out of trouble financially. So they're going to get some sort of inheritance from the uncle. Because Marx wanted German socialist Ferdinand LaSalle to find me some literary business in Germany to supplement my diminished income and increased expenditure, he cultivated him with flattery to his face and contempt behind his back. Marx referred to LaSalle's book on Hegel as an exhibition of enormous erudition when writing to LaSalle and as a silly concoction when writing to Engels. (laughs) (laughs) Marx added that LaSalle was a Jewish nigger. Based on Marx's analysis of his appearance. So here's a quote from an extended paragraph from Marx. It is now perfectly clear to me that as testified also by his cranial formation and hair growth, he is descended from the Negroes who joined Moses' exodus from Egypt unless his paternal mother or grandmother was crossed with a nigger. While this combination of Jewish and Germanic stock with the Negroid basic substance is bound to yield a strange product. The fellow's importunity is also nigger-like. Well, and this is, uh, Darwin is, in this one, Darwin came out, same time frame? Around there, yeah. Around there, so there was maybe some influence there with that. Engels likewise seized upon LaSalle's ancestry calling him a true Jew, and from birth to, to, and from, oh, oh, he's, so he's writing it as if he has a lisp, like a Yiddish person might speak. Oh, okay. it's, that's why I can't read it here. From Firth to Laugh, the stupid Yid. <laughs> that's how he wrote it. Right. So they're snide. Yeah. You know, they're, they're witty, but they're, They're biting witty, you know. They're snide. Crude and repulsive as Marx's and Engels' racial remarks to each other often were. There's racist, right? There's no need to make them still worse by putting them in the same category as 20th century racism that was justified genocide. So in other words... Thomas Sowell's making the point that 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 was, it's not necessarily their own spirits. You know, that was the flavor of the day. Right. 
Marx's much-criticized essay on the Jewish question, for example, contains clear statements of his distaste for what he considered to be Jewish cultural or social traits, but in the end it was a defense of Jews' rights to full political equality, written as a reply to a contemporary who had claimed that Jews should be required to give up their religion before receiving equal civil status. So Marx was against that. He was that. against that. Yeah. Interesting. Marx hoped that the characteristics he disliked in Jews would fade away with the disappearance of capitalism, thus leading to abolishing the essence of Jewry, but hardly in the sense of Hitler and the Nazis. Similarly, despite his anti-Negro stereotypes, during the American Civil War, he conducted propaganda for the North and for the emancipation of slaves. Perhaps more indicative, he agreed to the marriage of his eldest daughter to a man known to have some Negro ancestry after discouraging other suitors. Likewise, Engels in 1851 expressed to a friend his hope that the present persecution of the Jews in Germany will spread no further. Marx and Engels were, in short, inconsistent and privately crude, but hardly racial fanatics. And, and they're, so, you know, taking the cause of the, the downtrodden. Yeah. 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 So, might be a good place to stop. Yeah. That was very interesting. And we'll pick up the second half next time. I think we can get through this in, in one more time. But I just think it's important for, for people to know the personal history behind communism. Yeah. You know, follow the footprints, you know, understand the person that made those footprints. You yeah. won't yeah. Be- study what was Muhammad really like, you know, what was Jesus really like. Yeah. You know, those kinds of... Yeah, how confident should the Christian be in a comparison of leaders? Right. <laughs> I, I think confident. we stand pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, well, until next time. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Oh.